Did you know that corals can live deep underwater where it's pitch black and freezing cold? The truth is that there are actually more species of corals in deep water than there are in shallow water. It's Friday, February 2nd, and happy Science Friday, y'all. I'm sci-fi producer Rasha Aridi. I had no idea that corals could live thousands of feet underwater. I always imagined them in shallow, warm waters with the sunlight shining down on them. But deep sea coral reefs are huge. In fact, scientists just revealed the largest one in the world. Later, we'll learn how scientists mapped it and what makes deep sea corals so special. But first, let's check in on this week's biggest science stories. Here's Ira Flato. Syphilis is on the rise in the U.S. A new federal report on sexually transmitted infections in Americans revealed syphilis cases rose 80 percent between 2018 and 2022, with total cases being more than 200,000. That's the highest count in the U.S. since, what, 1950. But while the syphilis epidemic is growing, other STI rates are down. Joining me to help explain this and other science news of the week is Rachel Feldman, host of the podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Welcome back, Rachel. Thanks for having me, Ira. All right. This this case of sexually transmitted infections and syphilis, what's going on here? Yeah. So um, as you said, we've seen an 80% rise since 2018. And these are the 2022 numbers, which just got released. And and the CDC was very clear that they uh, suspect 2023 was worse. Obviously, this is troubling, but it's not surprising. You know, for the past few years, um, every time these reports have come out, the CDC has been sounding the alarm on syphilis. They think this is due to a decrease in condom use, but also largely due to issues in access to good health care, you know, social and economic conditions, stigma. So uh, a lot of this has more to do uh, with, with deep systemic issues than with anything actually related to sexual behavior. What do you mean by deep systemic issues? Something about differences in people or what? Yeah, so, you know, we're seeing people having a, a real lack of, of access to reliable, consistent, uh, affordable health care. And, you know, with syphilis, we do see the worst surges are in the, the group known as men who have sex with men, which is, uh, you know, largely probably tied to a decrease in condom use. But we also see rising rates in people of color, uh, in women of color, especially. So that public health researchers think really comes down to um, not just social stigma, but uh, just a question of whether people have uh, regular access to checkups and, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of relationships with their doctors where they're having conversations about screening for syphilis and other STIs. Well, there are, speaking of other STIs, how are they comparing to the syphilis cases? Yeah, so the good news is that um, chlamydia has finally leveled out and gonorrhea has actually gone down for the first time in a decade. And a, a few years ago, you know, gonorrhea was really what the CDC was concerned about. They were very worried that we were going to see 
you know, a surge in antibiotic resistant gonorrhea that we were going to run out of antibiotics that worked for it. So it's great news that those cases are going down. But those are chlamydia and gonorrhea, you know, those are very likely to cause immediate and noticeable symptoms that don't go away until you go get treatment for them. Syphilis uh, often is uh, pretty easy to ignore. The initial symptoms uh, tend to go away and it causes issues later, uh, particularly with congenital syphilis, which is, is when children are, are born um, infected with syphilis. And that has surged by more than 900%. Wow. Yeah. And wow. that's very concerning and also totally avoidable because all that has to happen is that people get screened and they get treated with antibiotics. Um, so again, that's a real indicator that this is a, an issue with uh, disparities in healthcare, yeah. as opposed to a few years ago, every time the CDC report came out, people would be like, is Tinder the problem? So I'm glad we're getting away from <laughs> that talking point, but um, this is definitely a concerning thing. Well, speaking of concerning, scientists have documented the first ever case of Alzheimer's disease being transmitted. What What's happening here? Yeah. So the important thing to note about this before we get into it is that there's absolutely no way that people will catch Alzheimer's disease from other people who have it. You know, it, no one has to be concerned about providing care or sharing space with uh, someone who has Alzheimer's disease. But this is a, a very weird, specific medical phenomenon that could actually help us learn more about how Alzheimer's works. Basically, it turns out that some people who were treated uh, with human growth hormone taken from the brains of human cadavers, which is a procedure that was banned 40 years ago and in retrospect seems like obviously a bad idea, but we've learned a lot about neurological disease since 40 years ago. It turns out some people who received this treatment may have been sort of seeded with the beta amyloid proteins that lead to Alzheimer's. And that led to them developing very unusual cases of Alzheimer's, some as young as in their 30s. But the mm. fact that this happened, you know, through the transmission of brain material from another human could actually help us better understand the mechanisms that cause Alzheimer's in uh, all patients. Oh, that's cool. We'll learn something from this. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. Let's go on to your next story. And for this one, we need to head into the Wayback Machine <laughs> to go back in time to when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals lived side by side. Now, we knew that that happens, right? But there's more information about just how long this period lasted. Yeah, uh, new evidence from uh, this cave in what's now central Germany uh, shows that humans, homo sapiens rather, were in northern Europe 45,000 years ago, which is several thousand years earlier than we had evidence of our ancestors being there before. And we know that Neanderthals were there during that time. So this basically pushes back the date of when we know that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals were hanging out in the same space by a few thousand years. And it's just continuing to chip away at this, uh, at this point, pretty defunct idea that like humans hit the scene and Neanderthals were toast, like immediately. Right. You know, we know, of course, that actually there was a lot of interbreeding that, you know, Neanderthals uh, exist in our own genome to this day. But this shows like, actually, there were probably several thousand years where these two species existed in the same region. What was the detective work here? And how did scientists figure this out? 
So they were able to examine some uh, bone fragments and look at the mitochondrial DNA, so the, the maternal line of these ancient humans. And they were able to show definitively that uh, these were Homo sapiens in this cave. And in fact, there were no signs of Neanderthals in this particular cave at all. And what's cool about that is that there were some particular spear tip fragments that were found there that scientists have long assumed were created solely by Neanderthals during this time. But this is an indication that Homo sapiens were also making them. Uh, so that could actually help uh, help them find more caves to maybe examine DNA a bit more closely because maybe there were Homo sapiens there instead of or in addition to Neanderthals. Hmm. All right, let's move on to this next story. It's it's really interesting. Most of us are used to typing just about every day, but it, it turns out now there's evidence that the old-fashioned way writing by hand may be better at improving learning and memory. Yeah, it could be. There's still a lot to learn, but basically they slapped some electrodes onto some students' heads and had them write words by hand and also type them. Um, and they were looking at, you know, what parts of the brain got activated during those two activities. And um, handwriting activated, like, almost the whole brain and different parts of the brain were talking to each other, like the visual and sensory and motor cortices. But typing was like a very sort of like flat, simple activity in terms of, you know, what parts of the brain were lighting up. And the researchers think this is because when you think about it, writing involves making lots of different movements. There's a lot of coordination involved. There's fine motor you're, you have to recall how different letters are shaped and how to make them and how to make them, you know, one against the other in, in different uh, sequences. So it's like actually very complicated. And typing is like a pretty repetitive motion. So it's not clear yet. We don't actually have evidence that this activity uh, translates to better memory, better learning. Um, but there are some other studies that have tried to show that. So it, it's building a body of evidence that, you know, writing does lead to better recall. There are a couple caveats. The study did use cursive and the researchers were quick to point out they don't actually have evidence that cursive is better for your brain than other forms of writing. <laughs> they just decided to use cursive because they like cursive. As someone who struggled with cursive as a child and really can't write it, um, I appreciate it that they <laughs> made that clarification. <laughs> and they also pointed out, you know, they are not arguing that typing is bad. Uh, I think one of the researchers said, obviously, if you're writing a whole essay, type you should type it. <laughs> Don't write that by hand. That's uh, unless you really want to. But maybe in terms of writing notes or journal entries or things that you really want to uh, recall later, maybe it's worth trying to write them by hand yeah. and see if that makes a difference for you. They're not saying to kids, hey, step away from the computers and iPads totally. Exactly. When it comes to yeah. Right, right. Right. I'm figuring that our next story is going to give me a new use for that pack of disinfectant disinfectant <laughs> wipes left over from COVID because a study found that closing the toilet seat before flushing doesn't really reduce <laughs> cross-contamination on bathroom surfaces. Uh, didn't we think that did? Wasn't there a study years ago that said, yes, you should do that? Yeah. So, you know, as somebody who's like written about a lot of, you know, poop related science uh, research over the years, whenever a study like this comes out, people people freak out. And I always remind people, you know, there are poop particles everywhere. It's not just the stuff that comes out of your toilet. So I know that disturbs some people, but microbes are we can't we can't get away from them. However, that 
doesn't mean uh, you can't do what you can to limit, you know, your toilet spewing as many microbes as possible. So yeah, the, these researchers, they basically seeded a toilet with this uh, microorganism that, that's really easy to track and identify and then flushed and were like examined the whole room to see where things went. And yeah, unfortunately, um, it seems like the gaps in a closed toilet seat are are plenty for microbes and micro droplets to get out. Um, there's a lot of airflow that happens when a toilet flushes. So there's, there's a lot of force. Um, but the good news for people who are freaked out about this is that they did find that rigorously cleaning a toilet bowl with a brush and, you know, an, an antimicrobial cleaning agent like Lysol did reduce the contamination quite a lot. So, uh, if you don't, want this to happen in your bathroom, you should use disinfectant in the toilet bowl and the toilet tank. And um, especially if, you know, you are sharing space with someone who, you know, has neurovirus or or is otherwise sick with a a gastrointestinal ailment. So yeah, you know, disinfectant does help disinfect. That's a great takeaway from this study. Yeah. Well, I moved my towels away from the toilet years ago when we first heard about this. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, um, This is great news, Rachel. You always bring us great stuff. Thanks for taking time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. Rachel Feltman, host of the podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. Scientists recently discovered the largest known deep-sea coral reef in the world. It's called Million Mounds, and it stretches all the way from Miami to Charleston, South Carolina. It's mostly made up of a stony coral that's usually found deep, deep down from about 650 feet to 3,300 feet deep. And when you're that far underwater, it is very cold and very dark and very unlike the colorful tropical coral reefs we're used to seeing shining in sunlit waters. So how different are deep sea corals? Why map them? What can we learn from them? Let's find out. Dr. Eric Cordes is a marine biologist and professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks, Ira. I'm glad to be here. You know, I've been around corals my whole life as a scuba diver. Don't they need sunlight for the photosynthetic zoanthellae that live in their tissues and sort of feed them? Yeah, most people think of those when when you're talking about corals. But the truth is that there are actually more species of corals in deep water without those photosynthetic symbionts than there are in shallow water. Really? Yeah, that's true. And based on some of this recent work, we're now learning that the coral reefs that exist in the deep ocean are actually more widespread and more common than shallow water coral reefs. That's amazing. I had no idea. Okay, so how do you get down there and describe for me what you see when you get down there? Well, there's a few different ways to get down there. My favorite way, of course, is in a crude submersible where you would get inside and take a ride down to these depths. We got to survey a few of these sites 
that were discussed in this paper for the first time using the Alvin submersible from the Woods Hole Oceanographic. It's probably the most famous submersible in the world. It was the one that dove on the Titanic, the one that discovered the hydrothermal vents for the first time. And you got to ride on it. Wow. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to ride in it a few times. And actually visiting this site was one of my favorite and most memorable dives of all time. What does it look like? So we started about 750 meters and we climbed up almost 100 meters. That's 300 feet or about the height of the Statue of Liberty during this dive. And we were on a coral mound the entire time. So these corals form this sort of loose framework. They, they lay down their skeleton just like the shallow water corals do. It's calcium carbonate and it builds up over thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of years to this massive mound that is just topped with this beautiful, thriving white coral. The different coral species that live down there can be red or purple or all sorts of different colors. The one that creates this habitat, the main builder of these reefs, is called Lophelia, and it's naturally white. Hmm. That is cool. What, what What's the job of, of these deep sea corals in this ecosystem? They are relying on the food that rains down from the surface. It's actually snowing down is more accurate. We call it marine snow because it looks like this gently falling snow when you're down there. And that's bringing all the food from the surface down to feed the, the base of the food web in these systems. So they're feeding on this material and the little crustaceans that are feeding on that little shrimp and these things called amphipods that are swimming around. And then that goes up to small fish and then even larger fish. And we have this whole big food web down there. They're taking this food that's snowing down from the surface and they're processing it. They're sequestering a lot of the carbon that comes from surface waters down in the deep sea to build these massive reefs. And they're recycling a lot of nutrients that go back into the water. And this is right below the Gulf Stream. So those nutrients go up into the Gulf Stream and are carried away and fuel surface productivity downstream and, and produce the nutrients that we need to feed the fish and shallow waters that we go out and catch. What kinds of animals do you see around there? What kinds of fish? Well, there's there's lots of little, you know, crabs and worms and everything that are kind of hiding in the coral framework, just like you would see when you're scuba diving on a shallow reef. But every once in a while, you get one of these larger fish coming through. During my dive in Alvin, the sub was actually attacked by a swordfish. Really? <laughs> what do you mean? A, a swordfish tried to attack the sub? Yeah, that happens from time to time. With all this light and noise that you're creating in the submarine, it kind of startles them and they are defending their turf and they can actually hurt themselves attacking the submarine. So the pilot, my friend Bruce Strickrat, was actually quick enough to give the swordfish a little tap on the tail with the manipulator to scare him off. And he went swimming away very, very rapidly after that. I'll bet. He didn't expect to see a big thing like you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but your work was involved mostly in revealing just how large Million Mounds is. And was it surprising to see just how big it was? 
Oh, it was totally amazing to see how big this site is. Uh, we've known that there were corals in this area that we, we refer to as the Blake Plateau between Florida and South Carolina. We've known that there were coral sites there for a few decades, going back even about 100 years. But we had no idea until we got to use some of the modern mapping tools that we now have that we were able to see just how extensive it was. And we thought of these as sort of individual separate coral sites in this sort of patchwork. And now we understand that they're all completely connected and it's just this one continuous coral habitat for like a hundred miles. You know, I can picture how you map the land. How do you map a coral reef? Yeah, so you can map the land from satellite and you can map the surface of the moon or Mars from satellites. Those maps are actually higher resolution than our map of the ocean floor. Really? Yeah. So the only way to get a good high resolution map of the ocean floor is to actually take a ship out there and run it back and forth like you're mowing the lawn and collect sonar information. So now we have what's called a multi-beam echo sounder. So instead of just one burst of sound that you're sending to the seafloor, we can send dozens of them at the same time and then tell how long it takes for that sound to get from the ship down to the seafloor and bounce back. And then we can tell the distance and that can give you a good three-dimensional view of the seafloor. Why is the reef called million mounds? Are there a million mounds? Not quite a million, but there are over 10,000 mounds. One of the cool things that was done in this study was Derek Sowers is the lead author. As part of the mapping effort, he compiled all of those data into one big map, and then he wrote an algorithm that could count those peaks, because you could imagine counting 10,000 peaks by hand would take quite a while. So this algorithm that he put together can tell the difference between a mound and a longer ridge feature and the slopes of a mound versus the peak. And we went out with the submersibles to try and test some of those ideas. Is, is this part of a, a bigger effort to map the seafloor? I mean, we really don't know very much about what's really down there deep, do we? No, that's true. This is a part of a much bigger effort to map the seafloor. It's called Seabed 2030, and it's an international effort to get a complete map of the ocean floor by 2030. It's a massive undertaking. You're trying to map the entire planet. <laughs> um, and we're, we're at about 25% of the oceans mapped right now. Just just 25%, yes. Just 25%. Yeah, that's right. But but that's pretty good because only a few years ago, we only knew what about 5% of it looked like. So these maps are getting better and better, and we're actually on pace to, to achieve this mapping effort of the entire globe by 2030. Now, the coral reefs near the surface where we live are being affected by climate change. Is that true of these deep sea corals? They are definitely vulnerable to climate change. We've watched the temperature rise in the deep ocean, and it's actually absorbed a lot of the heat from the, the shallow ocean and sort of done us a favor by building a big reservoir of that heat and keeping it out of the atmosphere. But we're starting to document what are referred to now as marine heat waves that are going by. And, and we saw some of these heat waves come by where the temperature would go from 
40 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit over a couple of hours. And that doesn't sound too extreme to us, but these corals live in such a constant environment in the deep ocean that that kind of a temperature change is a big shock to them. And they might be able to deal with one or two of those heat waves, but as they increase in frequency and start affecting them more often, then they get more and more stressed out. You know, for most people, these corals are, are out of sight and maybe out of mind because we don't see them. Tell us why we should care so much about these reefs. People really are not aware that they're deep sea corals. I mean, that's something even when I was in college that I didn't know. <laughs> I learned about that much later. And it is really amazing how widespread they are. They do a lot of the same things that shallow water coral reefs do for us. And, you know, they host this really high biodiversity and there are all sorts of natural products that come out of the marine environment that we're looking at for anti-cancer drugs and antibiotics and all sorts of other pharmaceutical purposes. But they're also regenerating all of the nutrients that fuel the entire Gulf Stream ecosystem. A lot of the nitrates and phosphates, the things that are in fertilizer, that's what these coral reefs are giving off. And we measured higher concentrations of those nutrients over the reef than we've measured anywhere else in the North Atlantic. Interesting. They are really fueling that system. And because we now are starting to understand that these deep water coral reefs are even more widespread than shallow water coral reefs, it just shows you how important they really are to the global ecosystem and these global cycles that we're really just beginning to learn about. Well, Dr. Cordes, you have certainly taught us a lot. I've been scuba diving for years and had no idea about these deep water corals. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Dr. Eric Cordes is a marine biologist and professor at Temple University. That's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's it for today. Lots of folks helped make the show happen, including... John Dankosky. Kathleen Davis. Dee Petersmith. Robin Kasmer. Join us on Monday to learn about CRISPR's potential to cure genetic diseases. Have a great weekend. I'm Rasha Aridi. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.